Hey everybody, welcome back to 10% True. Just before you get stuck into this episode, I wanted to let you know that in 2024, I'm going to be republishing my book, Red Eagle's America's Secret Megs. That's the story of the 4477th Test Evaluation Squadron and the program Constant Peg that exposed American fighter aircrew to secretly acquired and operated MiGs in the Nevada desert in the 1970s and 1980s. The book's been out of print for a while. It goes for crazy prices online, but I'll be republishing as a softback exclusively through my website, 10percenttrue.com. If you're thinking about supporting the channel, you'd like to buy the book for yourself or even as a gift, please do go and place a pre-order. I'll put a link in the description. All pre-orders are going to be 25% off and I'll make sure I personally inscribe and sign your copy for you. Anyway, I'll let you get back on with enjoying this episode. Take care. Ted, welcome back to 10% True. It's good to see you again. Good to see you. For the audience at home, uh, I'm talking to... Uh, actually, so Ted, I, I go by... I call you Ted and I call you Gabby because Gabby was your call sign. Uh, you sign off your emails and things with Ted. Um, what is the correct way of addressing you? I sign both. Okay. Well, Either right. one works. Gabby was my call sign just in the 4477. Monroe Watley tagged me with that. But uh, so I go by either Gabby or Ted, but guys that know me in different squadrons call me different things. Okay. I can't go wrong then. That's good to know. Um, yeah. So, so you've just indicated you're in the 4477th uh, Red Eagles uh, as part of Constant Peg, the uh, exposure of foreign um, MiGs predominantly to uh, the tactical air forces during the 1980s. And there's an interview that I did with you and Z-Man that's on the channel, which um, I'll link to in the description here. But we're not talking about that today. We're talking about actually your um, arrival in the F-16 in the early days, 1981 or so, uh, coming out of the F-4. Uh, and to understand a little bit about what the progression was in terms of your tactics development, um, how you learn to use the F-16 coming from the F-4. It was kind of interesting. I did a, an interview with a bunch of F-15E guys, um, which also I'll link to here in the, in the video, where they talked a lot about how in the early days of the F-15E, which would have been 88, 89 or so, they just employed the F-15E like an F-4 because they didn't know any different. They were coming from the F-4 at Seymour. So tell us a little bit, Ted, about what you were doing in the F-4 at the time you moved to the F-16 and what the transition was like between those two aircraft? Well, I'd been in the F-4 at Bentwaters from 72 to 76, and that was a um, three-mission squadron, primary air-to-ground nuke, secondary air-to-ground conventional, third air-to-air. So we did a little bit of everything. I went from there to Clark, 76 to 77, and we were a specialized air-to-air -air squadron, flying form crews and formed elements every day, air-to-air -air every day, we did a thing for the Air Force called the Air uh, Superiority Specialized Test. We had our own aggressor squadron right there. They they serviced all of PACAF, but we had a lot of sorties with them since we were basically in the same wing with them. We had a WESUP squadron for shooting missiles. So that was the air-to-air -air portion of Clark. Then I went to Homestead 78 to 81 as an F-4 instructor pilot. Uh, coming out of Homestead, the, the DO basically asked me, he, he called me into his office one day and he said, you're coming up for an assignment. I said, yes, sir. I was the assistant chief of wing weapons at uh, at Homestead. 
He said, interestingly enough for you, he says, I've got an exchange tour with the Brits flying Harriers out of RAF Valley. Are you interested? And I thought real long and hard for that. And I finally said, no, sir. I think I'll pass on that if it's okay. He said, what do you want? I said, I want an F-16. He went, oh, man. He said, let me see what I can do. So he finally worked me an F-16 to Nellis. And I got into the F-16 fairly early in 81. Hill uh, had, as I recall, uh, two operational squadrons and two RTU squadrons. And MacDill had three or four RTU squadrons. But Nellis was the first fully operational wing. So it was the best of assignments to get into that. Uh, going back to what the Strike Eagle guys said, when we went into the F-16, we also kind of started with F-4 tactics. And it turns out the F-4 tactics weren't all that bad. It's just that the F-4, uh, due to its radar and its maneuverability and things like that, wasn't able to do them nearly as well as the F-16 was. So going back to the F-4, a ground attack mission typically started with a low level followed by some type of delivery, either a nuclear delivery or a conventional delivery. And in F-16s, it was sort of going to be the same thing. So the low level in the F-4, the primary means of navigation was dead reckoning. It had an INS, but it wasn't a great INS. So this dead reckoning is you start at a known point, you take up a wind-corrected heading at a wind-corrected speed for a certain amount of time, and you'll be at your next point. And that worked great as long as there was nothing in your way, no mountains, no towns that you decided the last minute to go around, no aggressors jumping you where you have to maneuver against them and mess up the dead reckoning. Uh, in the F-16, the INSs were much better. You had an air-to-ground target designator box in your HUD sitting over the turn point. If it wasn't right on your turn point, which might be a road intersection, you could do a fire control computer slew and slew the TD box over onto it. And the fire control computer remembered that correction and applied it to all other turn points plus the target. You had a carrot in your HUD that showed you what speed to fly to get to that turn point on time. So all you had to do was match those up. And there was a mnemonic down in the lower left that said, if you're too damn lazy to fly the speed I'm asking you to fly, this is how much early or late you'll be at that turn point. So all the low level stuff was much, much easier. And if you had to do any maneuvering, you came out of it. The TD box was still on the turn point. The speed might be corrected to get you there on time. Correcting speed in an F4 was a nightmare. As I recall, you had to do something like if you pushed it up 60 knots for one minute, you gain six seconds or something like that. Well, the F-16, the computer took care of all that for you. So then you get to the target area. And let's talk about conventional first. Uh, you had two primary modes of delivery. You had direct and you had dive toss. Now direct, you had to, you typically actioned to three to four miles and you did your pop up and you had your pull down, you had your apex and you rolled in on the target and you had to be at your exact dive angle, at your exact airspeed, pickle at your exact altitude, with the exact wind-corrected aim-off distance and the pipper at the exact release point with pickle for the bomb to hit the target. That never happened. <laughs> you were always either a little steep or a little shallow, a little fast or a little slow, a little something else. And so you had to do some air analysis at the last minute. I'm going to pick a little high, I'm going to pick a little low, whatever. Didn't have to do that in the F-16. You just 
did your action point, rolled in, got close to where you wanted, put the aim off distance about where you wanted, rolled to the bomb fall line, went through the target, hold that to the pipper, got up to the target in CCIP, which was our normal delivery mode as continuous computed impact point, and pushed the button, and that's where the bomb hit. Um, it, it was, we called it the death dot. You put the button, the pipper on the target, and you push the button. To show you how accurate that was, when we would go to the range in the F-16 with TURs, triple ejector racks, and BDU-33s on the TURs, in the F-4, we were just, we didn't pay attention to which bomb was coming off which TUR or whatever. We were just trying to get it somewhere in the 75 or 150-foot circle. In the F-16, the first bomb would come off the left TUR and go straight down. And so we would aim about two or three meters right of the target. The second bomb came off the right turn and went straight down. So we would aim about three or four meters left of the target. The third bomb came off the left turn, left shoulder and ejected left. So there we were aiming about five meters right of the target. The fourth bomb came off the right turn and ejected left, almost right under the belly of the airplane. So aimed right at the target. The sixth bomb came off the left turn, right, right shoulder station. It ejected uh, sort of under the bottom, so we aimed at the target. And the last bomb came off the right tur, right shoulder station, so we were aiming about five meters left of the target. And that's what you had to do in order to get bombs better than the rest of the guys in your flight. If you got a shack, which I forget if it was three meters or five meters, all that meant was you weren't going to lose money on that pass. You might not win it because there might be two or three guys in the flight also get shacks, but at least you wouldn't lose money on that pass. So that's how accurate the CCIP was. It also had the dive toss mode like the F-4 had in it. But in the F-4, you rolled in, you got the radar ranging. The radar was basically at boresight. And so it's looking across the ground and you get a pretty big radar return on the scope. The shallower the dive angle, the bigger the radar return. And the backseater would lock that up but you could see the radar in there kind of breathing, trying to find the, the best spot in that radar return to give that range to the computer to release the bomb. When dive toss worked well, it worked better than direct did in an F4. But when dive toss didn't work well, it was much, much, much worse. And because of that, you basically never used it except to try to qualify with it when you had to qualify once a year with it but it was just too unpredictable. Later on, the units that got paved spike got the laser and could use that laser to input the range to the computer. Dive toss worked much better. Dive toss worked very, very well in the F-16, but it wasn't as good as CCIP, so that's what we used, and it was, it was excellent. So those were basically the same type tactics that the F-4 used, but done just much better and much more accurately. Let me talk about the radar in the F-16 just for a second. When you were coming in low level, I used to run 40-mile scope, four-bar scan with the ax symbols at 20 miles. And when you put the ax symbols at a certain place, it would tell you the altitude that you were covering with that four-bar radar beam. So an F-16 would cover 23,000 feet of altitude. So typically, I'd look from about uh, 3,000 below me to 20,000 above me. And I'd have the wingman looking 20,000 above to 40,000, 43,000 above us. So we're covering an area out in front of us 
60 degrees on either side, 40,000 feet of altitude out at 20 miles. And typically our radar contacts would be 25 or 30 miles of most fighter sized targets. So the radar gave you a very good picture of that in the F-16. In the F-4, not so much. You know, you're looking up, uh, there might be some clouds that might give some ground returns. Uh, there, there were things called stays, second time around echoes, where the radar would go out and it would listen for ones coming back, but some of the radar energy would keep coming out and it would come back to the receiver the second time around and just put a couple little flecks on your scope that only stayed there for one sweep and then they were gone. And the back seaters were back there, you know, they had to manually tilt the radar and gain it up and down a little bit too much. They gain down or not enough. They gain up. And it was just a, a real difficult thing to do with that F4 radar, even looking up. And if you had to look down with that F4 radar into ground return with cities and towns and ridgelines and this and that and something else, trying to pick a moving target out of that was a nightmare. Whereas with the pulse Doppler radar, the only thing that sh showed up, excuse me, was uh, was the moving targets. So the systems and everything were much better. The accuracy was much better. So it allowed us to do a lot of the things that we did in F4s, but did them much better. Can, can I ask then about, um, so, so a couple of obvious questions are going from uh, two-seat to single-seat uh, fighter. You've, you've actually just addressed some of the questions that I would have had around that in terms of, I guess, the sort of automation or the capability of the systems meant that that, that second person wasn't as, as, as necessary as required. Uh, did you feel the loss, if that's not the wrong way to put it, of having a backseater? I mean, you know, two pairs of eyes are better than one. Um, the ability to, you know, create additional situational awareness. I, I know that some backseaters can suck the, the the SA out of you. I know that works the other way too. But what was your feeling about that? Um, there is benefit to a second set of eyes. There's no doubt about that. Part of the way the F-16 made up for that was an F-4, you could turn around and if you push your head against the side of the canopy, you could see back maybe, oh, I don't know, to within maybe 30 degrees of your tail. So you could turn around 150 degrees maybe and look. In the F-16, you could turn around right and see your left wing tip and vice versa. I mean, you could just look right down the airplane. So it was distracting to do that, but you did have the capability to find guys that might have gotten behind you. Um, the the calm between a front and a back seater and an F4 crew coordination and knowing what to do was just very critical and being able to pass information in short, easily understood bursts. If you didn't have that, you had the front seater and the back seater talking back and forth a good bit together. Then you had radio coming in from the flight lead or the wingman coming into you. Then you had the tone in the headset for angle of attack in the F-4. Beep, 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 beep. And if you add into that either AWACS or GCI, your hearing is just task saturated to where you can't hardly hear any of it. So one of the good fixes for that was when we were Clark, we flew form crew, formed element. Drake, Bradley, Martin, and Yoush. We flew together all the time. So we got pretty good at being able to pass information back and forth in very short, concise statements that everybody understood. 
in the F-16, you didn't have that chatter. So you had to make up for the backseater some way. And, and one of the ways for the six o'clock coverage was you could see the radar coverage was you didn't need to tilt and gain. You could set it. It covered a big expanse of space. Um, in the visual arena, trying to lock up with an F-4 was very difficult. We had a th Normally, the radar swept relative to the horizon, but there was a mode called stab out, where then if the wings were like this, instead of sweeping relative to the horizon, it would sweep relative to your wings. But then you're talking to this guy, you know, on the nose, 30 high. So he's got to run the thing up 30 high. And by that time, the guy might be 40 high or something. So that was very difficult to get radar lock-ons, except for boresight. If you could put him in the pipper and boresight him, then you could get the lock. But that was about the best F-4 lock in a maneuvering environment. F-16, much different. You had four auto lock-on modes. You had the first mode, which was a 20 by 20, which basically locked anything in the HUD field of view. If there were more than one plane in the HUD field of view, you could pick the one out you wanted. You would uh, target designate switch forward, which brought the radar into bore sight right on the gun cross, put that on and release it, and it locked him. And you knew it was locked to him because the target designator box was around him and not the other guy. If you were in a turn and fight and the guy was 30 or 40 high, you went to vertical scan. And it scanned 10 by 40 or 50 this way, it would lock him up that way. Or we had what we called slewable ACM, which I think the F-15s call auto guns, which brings up a 20 by 60 scan, four bar scan, that initially comes up directly centered on you, 10 above, 10 below, 30 right, 30 left. But you can move that any place you want. So if you're out in front of a fight, but you want to come back into it, you can just put that thing level off to your left side, bring it back around in a 8G turn or whatever you're going to do, and the radar will lock him and put a TD box on him, and you can uncage the missile and stuff him very fast. So the systems on that um, compensated for not having a WIZO in most of the situations. What was the, and there's a lot to, to go through in the things you're talking about, but one, one question I wanted to get um, in before I forget it, if I'm honest with you, is to understand a little bit about what was the intended employment method or uh, approach for the S16. One of the things that's noteworthy about it is that it was designed um, with no medium-range missile capability. I know that the air defense units had uh, uh, you know, stuck the AIM-7 on it, but you guys would have gone out the door presumably just with AIM-9. Um, what use is, is uh, you know, I don't know, it's maybe being argumentative to say what use is a 40 mile radar you know radar scope or whatever if you've only got a, a sort of you know four or five um, mile missile you know in the form of the aim nine it was originally designed as a lightweight fighter now you have to remember the f-15 was in front of this but it was only in front of it by about seven or eight years and they wanted there were some in Congress that wanted the F-15 to also be a bomber. And the F-15 guys, the people in Congress didn't understand that when you start adding things for bombing, you're adding weight, which is detracting from your air-to-air -air performance. So the F-15 mantra was not a pound for air-to-ground. And part of this selling this F-15 as the pure air-to-air -air fighter meant that the F-16 had to be designated more as the pure air-to-ground fighter at least initially. That got the F-15 money to continue on. Uh, the AIM-9Ls were just coming into existence. 
So that gave us front quarter capability. Uh, AIM-9J would have been almost worthless. But that's why initially the airplane didn't have long-range missiles on it. That and the fact that an AIM-7 weighs 500 pounds. It's not a small missile. Uh, an AIM-9 weighs, I think, 167 pounds, significantly smaller. Some people called it the bottle rocket because it kind of just popped off when it shot, but it had good results. And I think the uh, AMRAMs weigh about 350, if I'm not mistaken. So losing 150 pounds of missile brought the F-16s much better into the uh, into the long-range radar missile arena. Can we talk a little bit more about the radar then, sort of having established that sort of background then? I, I suppose there's a natural comparison with the F-15 in terms of uh, technology and capability. I, I don't really know anything about that early radar for the F-16. I know a little bit about the early APG-63 for the F-15 in terms of it having similar, you know, sort of the acquisition curses, the, you know, showing what the radar coverage is, uh, and a lot of um, in, interpretation and simplification so that it just gave you, the pilot, the ability to make a, a decision around how you're going to effectively run the engagement rather than trying to figure out what, what was happening. Um, did you have the same sorts of capabilities then in that early F-16 radar? But what was your view of the radar then? Did you look at this and think this is uh, a quantum shift in capability? Did you look at it and think, I don't really, you know, I don't really trust it? Did you, what, what were your impressions of it? Oh, no, it was a quantum leap in capability. They took, they took the F-15 system. When you determine beam width, beam width is a trade-off. If you take your power and put it in a smaller beam width, it can see out further. But you don't cover as much altitude. So the F-15 had a fairly small beam width. And as I recall, they had an eight-bar scan. So it took them eight bars to go through this whole thing if they used their eight-bar scan. This is my understanding of their radar. Uh, ours, I think they consciously determined eight-bar scan was, was a little much. And since we didn't have any long-range radars that were going to be shooting out at 30 miles or even 20 miles, any missiles, they increased the beam width. So now we covered about the same amount of sky as an F-15 covers, we covered it in four bar, what they covered in eight bar. And the price we paid was our detection range was decreased. But it was still a wonderful radar. Uh, one of the things they had in it was great was a thing called target histories. So I think you could run like one, two, three, or four target histories. I used to run target history three. What that meant was you'd get a hit on the radar and the next sweep, it would update him, but it would keep that last target on there. And the next week, we would update him again, but keep his last two on there. So you could kind of see which direction that he was drifting and things like that without ever locking up or anything like that. So uh, the radar was very reliable. It almost never failed. Uh, the airplane had a thing in it called a, a maintenance fault list. It also had a pilot fault list. And so if anything was going on with the radar or any other system, it went into this maintenance fault list. And at the end of the flight, maintenance pulled this thing out of the computer and it said, the radar had a peak power detect two times. Let's tweak that a little bit. And, uh, and they did a lot of preventive maintenance that hadn't showed up yet to the pilot before it ever showed up. We're going to hopefully we'll have time to talk um, towards the end about your thoughts moving from 
so you, you flew the F-16A and then you went to the Red Eagles and then you went to Luke and flew the F-16C and, and hopefully we'll get a comparison between, you know, those two diff- those two versions and how they had changed. But that, that radar then, uh, did it have lots of modes? Did it have, um, you know, a raid oh, mode, uh, a, a twiz mode? What, what, what did it have? It, it had more modes than you could learn to use. Uh, for example, I've already talked about the air-to-air mode, which basically was range while search was its normal mode. It had the dogfight modes with four modes under that. Air-to-ground modes, it had map modes. It had the uh, offset aim points, two offset aim points for a target. It had expand where you could blow it up and get a better picture of it. It had a thing called DBS, which was Doppler beam sharpening, which typically worked best if the target was like 15 degrees off the nose. And it would paint things in such detail. It was a little grainy, a little digitally, but you could paint the back 12 cables going across the runway with that thing in in Doppler beam sharpening. It had ground ground moving target track modes with notches at three knots and five knots where you could track target. I tracked a Winnebago camper going up the side of a hill one day outside of Phoenix um, well, I'm, I'm not sure the A model had that. That that might have been a C model mode. Uh, but it had like C1 and C2 for finding ships in low C states and high C states. Um, it had a good a good many radar modes, but the A model mode did not have A model radar did not have track while scan. It did not, which the C model did. It did not have non-cooperative target recognition, which the C model had. It did not have raid cluster resolution, which the C model had. So the C model, which just came out about six or seven years after the A, uh, it was another quantum leap forward. What about uh, then maneuverability? The other very obvious thing about the F-16 is the 9G capability, the reclined seat. You're going from the F-4, which I know was you know, lo- loved by many, but maybe wasn't the best uh, turning fighter. Um, what sort of adjustments did you have to make? Did you have a a, a, a sort of pro- a program or a process where you built up to pulling 9Gs, or did you just go straight from the F-4 into the F-16 and do whatever you wanted? You went straight from the F-4 into the F-16 because nobody really knew that much about what was going to happen. Um, F-16 was extremely maneuverable. A clean A model was unbeatable in a visual fight. And I know the F-15 and the F-18 guys are going to moan and groan about that, but it was the truth. That thing was just a beast. It could do double elements. You'd start at 450, 500 knots, do one element, still have 300 knots, do another element. So they they couldn't outclimb you. They couldn't outturn you. You didn't have to worry about over G in the plane because the computer took care of that. So an F-15 had to blend his Gs in slowly and control them. And the F-16, you could just go, give me nine. And as much as I don't like to admit it now, some basic fighter maneuvering in the visual fight came down to just two things. Throttle A, B, stick full aft and hold. And hold it there till the airplane turned around and got behind him and then uncaged the missile and shoot. Or go to guns. So it was, uh, it was, maneuverability was beyond anything that we'd ever imagined. Um, you got to the point where you realized you had to be in fairly good shape to sustain these Gs. 
nine G's is is hard to do. I mean, that G suit is cutting you in half. You have to ease off occasionally just so you can breathe. Um, the, the reclined seat was meant to do two things, really. One, it reduced the distance between your brain and your heart so that the heart didn't have to pump blood quite as far up to keep it in your brain. But it also lowered the profile of the canopy just a little bit. So it was kind of a twofer. But the thing was, you're leaning back in this seat and you don't fly offensive BFM like this. You fly it like this. So you so you got a 30 degree seat. What amounts to is you've got a 30 degree bend at your six, seven cervical vertebrae. And a, a lot of guys had to have neck surgeries because of that. So you had to basically go to the gym. You had to lift some weights. You had to do some running and you had to do neck exercises. They had to, you know, to do 10 of these and 10 to the back and 10 to the side and 10 to the front trying to build up your neck muscles. The hardest fight you ever had in an F-16 was a similar fight against another F-16. I mean, it was just a G-pulling contest to see who could sustain the most Gs for the longest period of time. If you were defensive, your head typically flopped back against the seat and you'd, my arm was stronger than my neck muscles. If I wanted my head to move left, I'd grab my oxygen mask, my left hand, and I'd pull my head over that way. And my head would then be trapped. And I could look behind me and fly the defensive BFM. If there was ever a reversal, I'd grab the oxygen mask and I'd push it over to the right. So my head was over there looking right. Uh, at, at eight or nine Gs, everything weighs more. Your head weighs more and every your blood weighs more. Everything weighs more. And it was a... Um, it was a thing that you needed to be in better shape to fly that F-16. It had uh, the clean A model, uh, as I said, was just, it was the most maneuverable thing I've ever flown. But then two things happened where they took some of that maneuverability away from us. First was, if the generator, it was an electric jet. It needed the electrics to fly. And the things that really needed electrics to fly were the flight control computers. There were four of them. If the generator dropped offline, emergency power unit came online to provide electrics for the airplane. This was in the early days. Later on, they changed a lot of the electrics. The, the emergency power unit had a primary and a standby speed controller on it to keep it from overspeeding. But in the early days, neither one of those were working very well or as well as they should have. And the emergency power unit was coming on and was overspeeding, which was putting an overvoltage into the flight control computers. The A computer, which was the master, would detect this and just say, I can't take this voltage. You're going to burn the computers up. And it would shut down inputs to the flight control computers. Now, if your yaw channel goes to zero, your rudder centers and not much happens. If your roll channel goes to zero, your aileron center, and you're going to crash eventually, but probably not in the next three or four seconds. But if that horizontal stabilizer goes to neutral, depending upon the speed, you're going to crash right away. And this is going to be impossible to see, but the, the speed curve, the way it was, it would go way down and then it would jump way up and then it would kind of flatten. And where we were running around in our speed was right around up here, where if that horizontal stabilizer went to neutral, you got like minus 10 negative Gs. Uh, hope the guy doesn't mind using his name, but there was a guy named John Carey who was going into Buckley one day and his 
generator fails, the emergency power unit comes online, it overspeeds, everything goes to neutral. He gets this big minus negative Gs. His shoulders are up against the canopy. He can't reach the ejection handle. It does an outside Immelman, but the negative G, negative angle of attack, bled so much airspeed down. He's now down in that positive G area. It pendulums back down. I think he was like 90 nose down with two or 3,000 feet to go. He pulls the handle, never figuring he's going to get out, but wanted everyone to know that he that he didn't give up. He tried to the very end, and he wanted to die outside the airplane. He got two or three swings in the chute and hit the ground. Uh, John's face was black and blue from all the blood that had gone up to his head while he was under these negative Gs, but he got out of it. A couple months later, there was a guy up at Hill. I won't use his name. Um, he was on the range. General Dynamics was out there with film crews filming it, and he experiences this same thing, and they watch his airplane start flying like this. And he wasn't able to, he, he did eventually, I think, get to the handle, but either he didn't clear the plane or he just barely cleared the plane and didn't get a full shoot, and he died. So that grounded the airplanes. Two things came out of that. One, they put a third speed controller on the emergency power unit, but two, they said, if we take away a degree and a half of horizontal stabilator authority from them, then that will shift this graph to where, where they're normally running around and they're up here in the area that's minus 10 negative Gs. Now they'll be down here in the area where they're positive 10 negative, positive 10 Gs, and at least they can reach the ejection handle. So that took away some of our maneuverability. The next thing that happened was the leading edge flap program was a very aggressive program to give it the very aggressive maneuverability the plane had. It was so aggressive that on a couple airplanes, the torque tube that was controlling his leading edge flaps broke and the flap just went straight up in the air on the leading edge of the wing. I don't remember if we lost a plane because of that or if we almost lost a plane or two because of that, but the result was they softened that leading edge flap program and that, again, took some of our maneuverability away. Still a great airplane, but now we're sort of equal to an F-15A. And then, of course, later on when they went to the C model, they added about 2,000 pounds to it to accommodate the lantern pods. And that, again, took away some of the performance. Still a great maneuvering airplane. Did, did you always have, is it 27 degrees AOA limit? Did you always have that? I thought it was 25 degrees. My, you're uh, probably right. I'm just trying to, I only know. Uh, it from, from... Yeah, it, it, it did. And it would, so it would take you, if you were in a hard turn at nine G's, it would keep you nine G's as the airspeed bled down, bled down. It would take you to 25 degrees angle of attack and it would hold you there. Um, there were certain things you couldn't do because of that. You couldn't, like in the F4, we would teach stalls, you know, landing configuration stalls where you'd get the airspeed down, you'd get the buff, and you have to recover it. F-16, you couldn't do that. You had to power it idle and put the gear down and stuff. At level flight, it would the angle of attack would increase, 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 so it got to 25 degrees angle of attack, and then it would put you in a 7 to 800-foot-per-minute rate of descent at 25 degrees angle of attack. So it was that was always there. What about G-lock then? So... G-lock presumably was a thing before the F-16. I mean, you can G-lock at 3Gs, can't you? you? If you're, you know, if you're tired, dehydrated, you know, if you don't do, I think, I think there was a Red Aris pilot who G-locked and he, he did it in the circuit to land. I think it was a 5G break or something like that. G-locked and unfortunately didn't get out of the airplane. Um, so it mm -hmm. killed him. 
Was so he wearing a G suit? Yeah, he was, but he was tired. He had, I think the accident investigation said he had flown several times in the last few days. This was his second display of the day. And maybe he just didn't strain, um, went into the break to land and didn't strain or something. I don't know. I mean, you know, it was, uh, there were some, some extenuating circumstances by the sounds of it. But at any rate, you must have known about G-Lock. But did the incidence rate of G-Lock go up with that 9G capability? Were people smart enough just to let off the Gs a bit if they started to lose it? It went way up. Uh, I never really even heard of G-Lock before the F-16. And as a matter of fact, when I went into the F-16 the first time, you didn't have to go to centrifuge school or anything else. You just went from your airplane, you went to the, the F-16, and you started RTU. The first incidents that I know of of G-Lock was up at Hill in RTU. There was a student in the front seat, an instructor pilot in the back seat. And during this thing, the student G-Locks, G-induced loss of consciousness, where basically, I guess, I guess your audience understands about the blood draining from your brain and tunnel vision and things like that. Uh, the the brain, if it it's got about four to five seconds of oxygen in it, it can work fine with four with no oxygen for four to five seconds. But when you exceed that, then it just shuts down immediately. There's no warning. There's nothing else. You're fine. The next second, you're unconscious. This student G locked the back seater knows the airplane's going down, tells him to recover, recover, recover. When the student doesn't, the, then the backseater takes control of it and recovers the airplane. And it wasn't until later they figured out what had happened to him. And the thing about G-lock is when you, when you ease off the G and you get blood back to your brain, you're still not functional for like 20 or 30 seconds after that. I mean, the neurons are kind of firing and your hands are moving, but you're not really able to control them to say, okay, now I'm going to fly an airplane. with them. So that happened. And then we started going into some training for this, a little bit of the, the weight training and a little bit of running, but they didn't want you to run too much because running too much lowers your blood pressure. You know, they wanted you to be able to get your blood pressure up, which is what a straining maneuver does. If you're raising your blood pressure to try to keep that blood in your brain so you can still function and see. Uh, then there were two cases. I won't mention these guys' names either, but there was a, a, a weapon school instructor. And he had been, I think, sick for a couple of days and came back and went out on an air-to-air -air mission and apparently G-locked and died. And then there was a guy in... Uh, my old squadron at, at uh, Nellis, the 429th, who went out on an air-to-air -air mission, G-locked and died. And, uh, and so then we started doing, you know, some G-awareness turns, build four to five Gs, building up to it so you could understand what it was. And, and the biggest thing is honoring that tunnel vision and blackout. Um, because like I said, the F-16, you can just go, give me nine. And it'll take you from one, it'll actually take you up to 9.4. It had a 5% allowable oversheet. It'd take you to 9.4, and then it'd bring you back down, 9.3, 9.2, 9.1, 9.0, and it just holds you there. Can you, because the audience is is, is going to be aware of G-Lock and what it is, but they may not be aware of what it feels like. Can you, just, can you describe the stages of, you know, the increase, well, the loss of vision, the increase in sort of, perception around audio uh, and then and then you know um, give them a sense of what it's like well i give you a sense of what it's like as much as i've experienced it uh, 
you know, every, every fighter pilot's ever flown as, as you're pulling G's, you've got a G suit on. And, and in my years, it was bladder and lower legs. And that starts inflating with air to keep pressure on those things. So the blood won't go down there and pull. And you're doing the straining maneuver, increasing your blood pressure, trying to keep blood up to your head and your eyes. Your eyes have fluid in them, which is under pressure. And for blood to get oxygen to your eyes, it's got to be more pressure than is required to get it to your brain. So the result of that is if you're pulling too much G, the indication that you're, you're pulling a lot of G is the first thing that happens is you start to lose your peripheral vision, tunnel vision. You can still see in the center, but you're losing the outside of it. If you keep pulling, you will go to blackout. Now, blackout isn't unconsciousness. It's just you can't see at all. Uh, you're perfectly conscious. So you got to ask yourself at that point, what good am I doing if I can't see? I got to at least be able to see a little bit. So most people then ease off the G to where you can start getting your, your vision back and then fly from there. If you keep pulling after the blackout, at some point, you're going to get to the point maybe where you lose consciousness. I've seen pictures in the simulator of what guys did when they when this thing happened. And what it was, was they were fighting, they were fighting, and eventually they just slump. And and they just kind of bouncing around. And as they start coming back to again, they we called it doing the chicken because you're just taught your head and your arms and, you know, you're just kind of, and then that starts settling down after 20 or 30 seconds. And, and then you can fly again. And these guys at the end of it were totally exhausted. I mean, that apparently just drains all energy out of you. Today they've got the auto, I can't remember what it's called, but it's auto collision avoidance. Maybe it's called auto ground collision avoidance. And so it's saved a few guys even today um, uh, in, in the F-16 community from flying into the ground following following G-lock. It sounds like. Yeah, I, I didn't have that on any of the planes I flew. So, so having established, then you've you've got this great radar. You have a fantastic uh, weapons aiming computer and the ability to go and find targets and and um, you know not worry too much about where you are because the airplane will keep track of that and get you in the right direction and onto the right timeline. Um, what was the first couple of years of flying the F sixteen like then? So, so how did on the basis of that technological advancement, how did tactics evolve and what things led to that development? Uh, we just got a lot more aggressive. Uh, for example, I was in the F-16 uh, wing at Nellis. So we had, down the street, we had the weapon schools, and, and we routinely, we'd fly against the aggressors, we'd fly against the 15 weapon school, we'd fly against the 422 doing some of their tests. Um, we, we got to do just a whole bunch of things that most units don't get to do. Now, in an F-4, a 1v1, an F-4 against an F-5, that's a really tough fight for the F-4. Because the F-5's got better turn rate and better turn radius, and the F-4's got to try to keep its speed up and do these big vertical maneuvers and keep sight of this little guy all while you're doing it. And it was a real difficult thing to even come out neutral, and most of the time you lost. In the F-16, we just enjoyed the payback. Okay. One, we had the newest airplanes there. They even smelled new, Steve. I went to pick one up at the factory, and I mean, it smelled like a new car. Did it? Uh, they, they were all 
378, 379, 380, 381, 382, 383, 384. They're all in numerical order. They're brand new. They're the sexiest looking things I'd ever seen in my life, uh, except for a few girls maybe. <laughs> but uh, but we go down the street and, and do a 1v1 against the F5s, and it was just the roles were totally reversed. We just owned them. It had to be at least 2v1 to be anywhere near challenging, and really 3v1 was probably an equal fight. Okay, so so before you go any further, how on earth do you do a 3v1? You, 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 so you've got, there's one of you, there's three little F5 swirling around. How do you do yeah. that? Well, first of all, if you start with a 2v4, and one of them aborts and one of you aborts, so that ends up 3v1. So this one, we go into the fight. I've got all three of them on radar. I come down quick, and I kill the trailing guy right there. So now it's 2v1. It takes about 180 degrees a turn for me to kill the second guy. The third guy's now maneuvering back towards my, the stern. You extend out of the fight. I was like four miles out of this fight. And I put it in slowable ACM, bring it around the corner. It locks him up. I shoot an A9, and then I go in and I gun. <laughs> and in the debrief, in the debrief, because this was an aggressor upgrade, the guy goes through the thing and he says, um, and it's not a bad statement to make. He said, uh, you got the first kill. That was good. You got the second kill. And you'd extended out of the fight and were safe. He says, it might have been just good just to keep on going. You've got two kills and not risk your airplane coming back into a fight with a guy that's at your six o'clock, even at four miles. And I said, hold it. I said, 3v1, you might have a slight advantage. 2v1, I've definitely got an advantage. 1v1, I own the fight. I am not going to let you get away. I'm going to hunt you down and kill you. And that was just the mindset that you could do with that little thing, not because you were a great fighter pilot, but because you were flying a great fighter. What about then um, the development of sort of, let's say, flight tactics. So, um, you know, two ship, four ship. Uh, the Eagle famously has the eight ship wall um, of Eagles that, you know, it goes out there, line abreast and covers all this airspace in the same fashion as you were talking about earlier around you and your wingman. Um, what was the development then or the um, exploitation of that radar capability times four, you know, with four or 16s or, or a flight of four? Uh, same type of thing. Basically, a flight of four is two flights of two. A flight of eight is two flights of four, which is each two flights of two. So you're going out together and you've got mutual support. You've got certain tasks you want to perform. But when things start breaking down, you're breaking down into two two ships doing the job. That was the same way in the F-4 as it was in the F-16. But the F-16 was just so much better at it. You know, the radar lock-on modes were so much better this all in a sort of visual fight. Now, if you're starting out at 30 miles and um, and you're flying against Eagles with AIM-7s with NCTR, then eventually when you get into this, you're going to have to do two types of defensive maneuvers. If, if you think you're targeted, you're going to have to try to notch their radar. Put it on the notch where it can no longer determine what's you and what's ground because your closing velocity on you is the same as the ground. Hopefully that's it. And I would typically do a little bit of weave there just to make sure I was in the notch. 
eventually then as they're getting in closer, you're going to do infrared missile defense. So you're going to have to come to idle and turn into and break into him. And as soon as you're inside the, the range for that and out of his gun plane, then you can start getting back and you can maneuver. And, and that was a tough thing to do, but it was possible to do. You could defeat an Eagle, aim seven, aim nine, and a gun and win it. But he had the advantage in that, in that arena, definitely. What was it? Visual, visual arena, the F-16 had it, but in the all aspect arena, out of long range, the Eagle had it. So, so would it, Ted, have been at the, around this time then that the, um, again, I think, I think the F-16 is, is well known for it, but the, the exploding cantaloupe, this idea of a four-ship of F-16s coming at a, at a bunch of Eagles and then you all split into different directions and, you know, up, down, left and right. Did that, did that come around about that time? I never had it with eight airplanes. I never even had it dissimilar. We did fly 1v1v1v1s where you would have different ways to split up. Sometimes you would take the four ship straight up in the air. Four would roll. He'd go that way. One go that way. The wing would peel off and go that way. You'd come around as you pass. The fight was on. Everybody was a friend and everybody was an enemy. That did have some good learning objectives to it, but the generals and things, when they learned about it, they didn't really care for it and they put it into it. So I never even flew that in the F-16. That was mostly F-4 stuff, late 70s, early 80s. Was this part of the culture of zero, zero tolerance around aircraft losses? Then you, you, you lost an aircraft and if you were a wing commander, you'd lose your job regardless of, of why? Well, I don't know if it's really zero tolerance, but I, I remember, well, in some cases it might have been. We lost a lot of F-16s early on. When you go to a quantum leap like that with fly-by-wire and stuff, uh, there's a lot of things that go wrong that you, you didn't uh, expect. Um, for example, there was a guy up at Hill was coming back from the range to Hill. He's crossing the Great Salt Lake. He hits a pelican, which takes off maybe part or all of his radome. But the radome had the two angle of attack sensors on. And when the airplane didn't have the angle of attack sensors, it thought it was stalling and it pushed him over into the water. He got out right before it hit the water, but, you know, I don't think anybody had ever uh, thought of that. Um, we had, uh, like I said, we lost a, a bunch of them for a couple of them for the emergency power units over speeding. We had, uh, and Hill lost their wing commander over one of those. Uh, down at Nellis, we had, we lost one guy between Christmas and New Year's one year when we weren't supposed to be flying out of control in an air-to-air -air arena. I think the wing commander survived that one. But the next one, we had a plane run off the end of the runway because of some funny stuff. And I think he got fired over that. And I spoke with him about it because this, this guy was a great guy, a great wing commander. Everybody loved him. Uh, he was a great fighter pilot. Um, you, you know, he went to the range with you. You have to be careful or he was going to take your money. And he said what the four-star had told him was, he says, you know, it's like playing blackjack down in Vegas. You're getting good cards, but the dealer's just beating you. What do you do? You change tables. He says, that's what I'm doing. I'm changing tables. So... 
Yeah. Yeah. I don't know if it's one, but certainly by two, typically the wing commander or the DO or both were gone. And a lot of good people got wrapped up in that that shouldn't have been. Let me tell you about this one story about this guy that goes off the end of the runway. Because this shows how things occur in a new airplane that you just don't anticipate. Guy's coming back, he comes in to land, and he drops the gear, and he gets no gear down indication at all. So he goes out, declares an emergency, goes out, and he does an alternate gear extension. He still has no gear indication. Does a flyby by the tower. They say the gear looks down and locked. Says, okay. So he comes in to land, and sure enough, the gear is down, but he steps on the brakes, and he's got no brakes. So we had channel one and channel two. He goes to channel two brakes. He goes in, no brakes. Next procedure is to turn off the anti-skid. He turns the anti-skid on. He's still got no brakes. Not to worry. He's got a back 12 barrier coming up. He drops the hook to catch the back 12 barrier. Here comes the barrier. There goes the barrier. He's at idle, but he's still doing like 60 or 80 knots. He goes off the end of the runway into the desert, bounces around, flips upside down. The airplane breaks in half. He tries to radio tower to let him know things aren't going well, but the battery is in the right gear well, which has broken off of the airplane. And there's a fire starting in the wing route out there. And since he declared an emergency, he had fire trucks lined up all along the runway. So they all follow him off the end of the runway. This guy's in there hanging upside down with no approved method of cutting through this canopy. And this fire guy says to him, lean back, son, I'm coming through. And he's got this diamond tip circular drill and he cuts this big hole out of the side of this F-16 canopy. And Kim is getting ready to try to let himself down. He says, the fire guy just reaches in, unhooks his lap belt. He falls on his head. The guy grabs him by the harness and he's trying to pull him out. And his head's caught, his helmet's caught. But they get him out and he's okay. And what they find out was that there was one cannon plug that connected that one panel to the airplane. And if that cannon plug came loose, you lost everything there. That was a cannon plug to, for the control panel for the gear or for, for, the, the, for gear, the battery? For the brakes, for the anti-skid, for the tail hook. Wow. I'm, I, I have a vague recollection of going back to the leading edge flap um, failure, torque bar failure you, you referenced. I have a vague recollection of that video being on YouTube, actually. So it happened to somebody and he managed to land the aeroplane. You can see him going in. He's all sort of skewed to one side, I guess, where you know there's a bunch of drag on one side and and, and none on the other. And I think he managed to land that. But um, yeah, it's interesting. Those are the sorts of things that you only find out by flying. What did you What did you do then in in terms of um, execution of mission? So you've you've talked about becoming more aggressive. You've talked about in the F four. You know you you would have not much of a chance if you were bounced um, and it would mess up all of your calculations around sort of where you were and, and getting time on target. But I, I suppose one of the things I think about with the F-16 is if you're going to go and do an air-to-ground mission, I'm guessing in those days you'd have been carrying, you know, Mark 82, Mark 84, maybe some CBU, you'd have been heavy. Um, if you're going to be aggressive going to the target then and you get bounced and you're heavy, can you still fight or are you going to have to jettison those weapons in order to take out the, the bouncer? Let's jump to the Lousy Mouth Bomb Competition, 1981. The Hill uh, Wing, 388th Wing, takes a bunch of airplanes over there. It's an international competition. 
Uh, first time the F-16s had ever been there, but they have Buccaneers and they have Harriers and they have this and they have that F-111s. And it's a, it's a big competition lasts three weeks or a month or something like that. And the, the object is for the bombers to fly this low level and get to the target. They've got air assets there out against them, maybe even ground assets out against them. I forget exactly what it was, but the, the airborne aggressors are going to try to bounce them and keep them from getting to their targets or make them get to their targets late. Well, for everyone except the F-16s, the objective is, let's see if we can neutralize them. We'll pass as head on to them as we can. We'll try to outrun them. We'll get to what we're doing. I think the, the unit that actually shot down the highest number of aggressors, not an F-16 unit, was like they killed one or two of the guys during this couple week long competition. The F-16 guys went out, they had TERS with BDU-33s, which were 33 pound bombs. Um, and they went out and they killed in this week something like 75 or 80 of these aggressors. They basically just adopted the, uh, the old adage that the best defense is a strong offense. They said, if they're coming into our space, we'll kill them. And then we'll go to the target. So as I recall, the target things were like plus or minus two minutes. They planned on being a minute and a half early, still within their two-minute time slot. But it gave them then three and a half minutes to maneuver if they had to to kill these guys. And so they'd go out. The aggressors would come in. The F-16s would pop up. They'd just kill them. And if I'm not mistaken, they were killing them with AIM-9Js and a gun. So they didn't have an all-aspect missile. I might be wrong on that, but that I remember seeing a picture of one of their planes that had an A9J on it. Um, and the aggressors would come back in the debrief and they would say, yes, but if you had Mark 82s or Mark 84s on board, that extra weight and drag, you wouldn't be able to do that. And the 16 guys said, yeah, we probably would. We just have to use burner. The aggressor guys thought they'd been using burner all the time and they'd just been using mill power. So you still have capability, but there is a limit to the capability. And that, and that was with a fourth-generation airplane against third-generation aggressors. You know, now when you're talking about fourth-generation airplane against fourth-generation aggressors, or worst case, fourth-generation airplane against fifth-generation aggressors, now that all changes. Hmm. But when you've got the, the fourth-generation plane and they don't, you can do things like that. Talk, talk a bit about the aggressors then. So you, you've talked about clubbing those three F5s and, uh, and obviously the, the guys going out to Lossy having... Um, some success there as well. But did they then change the way that they were operating in order to up the game for you? Because the idea behind the aggressors was obviously to uh, to sort of emulate the the threat, you know, typically let's say the Russians, uh, but other nations too. Uh, but they weren't constrained to only their tactics. They were also there to try and, uh, I suppose, you know, show you what a really capable adversary would look like, even if, you know, they, it wasn't that realistic. So did they start changing the way they did business in order to keep you guys on your toes? Uh, they did some. They under, they quickly learned what we could do, and they tried to come up with ways to, to hide guys or do high-low splits or do drags or things like that, try to notch our radar too, to try to get a guy into the fight unobserved. Um they, you know, typically they were emulating fish beds and floggers. So a fish bed's a very maneuverable airplane, but doesn't have a lot of all aspect weapons. The flogger had some all aspect weapons, but was not maneuverable at all. Mm. 
but the aggressors, you know, as as fighter pilots don't want to lose, they didn't want to lose either. So they started emulating what we called fog beds, which was the maneuverability of a MiG-21 with the apex missile system of a flogger. So, yeah, they, they adapted some. They tried to do, you know, what they could uh, to keep things real. You went to the, the Red Eagles. We've already talked about that. And, and um, you became uh, eventually the, the high-time uh, MiG-23 guy uh, on that squadron. Um, but first you flew the MiG-21. So, so coming from that F-16A and going to the MiG-21, and this would have been, I guess, the F-13, the CE, Fishbed CE, or I don't know yeah. if you flew the J-7s, I don't know if you flew the Chinese ones, but but what, what did you therefore do, knowing how capable the F-16A was, to um, sort of figure out how to beat that in the MiG-21? Because people talk about the low-speed capability, particularly of those Fishbed CEs, nose-pointing ability, that is counter to, I guess, a 25-degree angle of attack limit that you had in the F-16. How, how would you beat an F-16 in a, in, a, in a Fishbed CE? As maneuverable as that F-16 was, at slow speed, that MiG-21 was better. Especially that, fifth, uh, that Fishbed C model, because it didn't have really much weight in the nose. It only had that high fix radar, which is a range only radar. So what we do with them, even if they started offensive against us, we just wind that turn up. And that Delta Wing MiG-21 bled airspeed faster than any airplane you've ever been in in your life. If you started going north at 450 and put it into a six and a half G turn, by the time you were through west, it was a 350. Through south at 250. Through east, you were 150 knots. And then you could jack the nose up and fly it like a kite easily at 90 knots. F-16, as I recall, you know, 100, 105 knots, something like that. So, and, and the MiG-21, we had the big test pilot airspeed indicators in them that read, uh, they went around once for every 100 knots. And then there was a number in the center that read what the 100 was. So you could fly, as I recall, our MiG-21 stalled between 77 and 72 knots, depending on how much gas you had in them. So, And if the airplane stalled, the only thing that happened was the nose dropped and rolled off on a wing. By that time, you had 110 knots again, and you could bring the nose back up. So what we did against all those airplanes that thought they had a very good slow speed capability was we just wrap that turn up, jack the nose up, fly it like a kite. Typically, they had overshot just a little bit and might still be slowly behind us, but they could see themselves slowly walking forward on this. And we could just talk to them on the radio. How's this looking to you? He says, it's not looking very good. Yeah, let's knock it off. So that taught them that they needed to maintain some space between them and this thing, that they couldn't just go go right for guns. Did, did you have a chance to fly against Constant Peg or, or to be exposed to the Constant Peg program before you went to the Red Eagles to be part of it? Yeah. So so had you learned that already then? Um, I guess what I'm asking is, was the understanding or the level of sophistication around a performance profile or an exposure in 1981 um, mature enough to really teach a new F-16, because the F-16 is new, to teach a new F-16 guy what, what he, he should or should not do? Yeah, because the 4477th guys would tell you this in the briefing. This this wasn't something, the, the constant peg program wasn't something to just go out there and, and uh, trial and error it. They would tell you, because they had flown against F-16s from the 422, who had them before a lot of other people had them and stuff, 
they knew what the airplane could do and they knew what they could do. And so they would tell you in the briefing, typically we'd have when, when debts would come in, you'd get a security in brief, you get a local area briefing, then you get an hour on the MiG-21 and an hour on MiG-23. And the hour on the MiG-21 wasn't telling you what the plane could do based on what Intel said. Everybody knew what the Intel numbers were. We would tell them, or they would tell us, depending on which side we were flying on, what the plane could do well, what we liked to do with it and why, and what it could do, but didn't do very well, and why we didn't like to do that with it. So the 44-7-7 guys, when I flew with them and my group, they told us all, you know, this is your strength. This is how you beat it. This is how you're going to lose to it. If you get too tight and he jams you, this is how it's going to turn out. But they also kind of said, if you feel the need to see this firsthand, do it now. You know, so you can see how this is. And so you typically get two or three engagements with the MiG-21. So you could try one of them where you got in tight and saw, and then you could try the other ones where you maintain some more spacing on them, kept a, kept a little bit more away from them. I'm going to just, um, I suppose, demonstrate my ignorance here. But so if the MiG-21 then is really going to intimidate by sort of nose pointing, uh, by, by, by pointing its nose at you wherever you are in the circle, how do you beat it? Oh, well, you stay away. As he's winding this turn up, you kind of lag it out a little bit to maintain some spacing so that you can get some turn radius and come back in and, and shoot him with a missile or maintain enough spacing that you can come back in and get your nose on him outside of 1,500 feet for gun range. You're probably going to be closing on him, but if he's doing 90 knots and you're doing 105, you're not closing real, real fast. You've just got to have enough spacing to allow that to happen. Now, this is all just a 1v1 visual fight where no one's really going to die at the end of it. If you start adding in tactics for the MiG-21, the MiG-21 is probably going to try to stay fast, too, as long as he can, and only wind that up to keep himself from dying. But if there's another airplane, another friendly airplane out there, and this MiG-21 sitting there at, at 80 knots or something, I mean, he's a strafe target. So. And why would the MiG-21 stay fast as part of his tactics? Well, because he doesn't necessarily want to get in that slow speed fight anyway if there's more than one airplane. If there's just the one airplane, he'll want to get you slow because that's where he's got the advantage. But if there's like two or three or four MiG-21s and two or three or four F-16s or F-4s or F-15s or whatever, um, everyone wants to stay fast. Speed is the potential to maneuver. And so that gives you maneuverability. When you're slow, you, you don't have much maneuverability. You you did end up on, on May 23, as I just mentioned, and, and obviously um, became the high time guy there. Um, cheeky question for you. Were you the high time or the most most saucy guy in the Air Force or just in your unit on the May 23? Do you know? I don't know for sure. I suspect in the Air Force, but I don't know that for sure. Okay. What did what did flying that then do for your or to your fighter pilot senses then? So you've come from this nine G highly maneuverable airplane, then you've flown this little sort of whippersnapper of a fighter in the MiG twenty one, and now you've gone to the MiG twenty three. What what did that do to you? you? Say again. It humbled you. <laughs> I mean, your your ego went away a good bit. Um, once again, it was it was good 
to show the guys the real airplane in the air, just to let them fly beside of it and look at it, uh, what its real size was, what it really looked like, and things like that, the different wing sweep configurations and things. And then a lot in the engagements to try to show them the strength of the MiG-23. For example, you get in a, a fight maybe where the MiG-23 was offensive, this guy was defensive, he puts a good hard turn on you, you maybe try to take a snapshot or something like that, then you just unload and accelerate. He reverses to come back on you, and and when he comes back on you, you've been lit the burner, pulled the wings to 72 degrees, rolled to keep him in the periscope, and you just say to him, when you get locked, give me your range and overtake. And it wasn't at all uncommon for him to say, 2.6 miles opening at 390 knots. And a missile's not going to catch that. So that was that was one of the things we just showed him was, if he tries to separate from the fight, he may be able to do that. The other thing that was kind of interesting was, typically in an intercept, when you're doing intercept against similar airplanes or even dissimilar airplanes, they're coming down the scope. Maybe you've each got 500 knots cal or something like that. And you put the axe symbols on the guy and you lock him up. And the, the radar, when you lock, it goes into a little scan looking for it and, and then it locks it up. Well, when they were doing intercepts against us with maybe a MiG-21 and a MiG-23, the MiG-21 was the slowest of the two, and he's coming in at 600 or six and a quarter, and the MiG-23 is coming in at 700 plus. So a lot of the guys, 15s and 16s, they put the axe symbols on it, and they tried to lock, and by the time the radar got to lock at him, he had flown out of the axe symbols down the bottom. So now the radar goes back to search, and now instead of him being 25 miles, he's 20 miles. And if they tried that again and didn't work, then it was 15 miles. So, so what the lesson learned there was put him at the top of the axe symbols. So if he's going real fast, let him fly into the gate and not out of it. Yeah. So there were some lessons that could be learned there. And, and there were some things of um, altitude splits and things in energy. Like if you had that thing going 700 knots and we did what we called astro hog, which was took it up in a big loop with the wings at 72 degrees. If you started at 15,000 feet, you came over the top at 35,000 feet. So a lot of other airplanes could do their Emmelman with you, but now they're below you. You know, they didn't start with as much energy as you had. So there were a few lessons learned that they could get in there, but most of the guys, uh, certainly all the fourth generation fighters just ate a MiG-23. I never, I don't think I ever got a valid shot on a fourth generation fighter. The whole time I was flying it, you were simulating A8, the the AFID, or is it Apex? I can't remember which Ape, one. Is. Well, Apex and AFID. Okay. Apex was the radar missile. Uh, AA7 Apex was it, and the AA8 was their AFID. Okay, that was um, the IR. Was it the IR? Yeah, yeah, yeah. AFID was IR. AA8. Uh, yeah, and I, you know, fights on once they put the turn on you, things. I I just don't, I might have got a few snapshots. But that was probably about it. I think I got a couple of valid shots on a couple of F4s, but that was about it. You you then went to um, Hill, I think you said, to be an instructor at the RTU. Luke. Luke. Okay, went to Luke. Was that a, a natural place to send somebody with the experience that you had just gained? I mean, I would have thought somebody with your experience would want to go to, they'd want to send to a frontline unit where, um, 
because I'm guessing you couldn't say too much. I mean, those guys going through the RTU wouldn't have had been read into constant peg at that point, presumably. And and so, um, were you somewhat hamstrung in what you could do to share the knowledge? Uh, for sharing the knowledge, like down at Luke, um, what I would do was when we'd start talking about MiG 21s and MiG 23s, and this was just about the time. You know, MiG-29s were just starting to come into the inventory. We didn't know a whole lot about them just yet. Was, uh, you know, I've heard that if you do this against MiG-21, this will happen. I've read somewhere if you did this, MiG-23 would do this. So that's how you could impart knowledge to the other guys in the thing. Uh, I ended up at Luke primarily, I think, because... Uh, uh, my wife at the time had a job in in Las Vegas and they had a company down in Phoenix. And so she could transfer directly to that company and she'd been doing real well. And, and I didn't want to take her out of her element that much. So Luke ended up being a fairly good uh, fix for us. I think the air force would have preferred me to have gone to another unit because they didn't want somebody going to be an RTU IP that hadn't been current in that airplane before they got there. So I had to go to McDill to go through a TX track three Bravo or whatever it was, and then back to Luke as an instructor. But uh, it was, it was no real, no real problem for me. Was it a bit of a culture shock or was it similar to going from the F4 to the F16A going from the MiG-23 to the F16C? Oh, it was, it was, um, very enjoyable again you know once again it had it had new avionics in it we had block 25 hardware with block 30e software as i recall um and and like i mentioned in the one other thing the 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 radar in the f-16c it had three levels in it the first one when you first started the engine and the radar came online it came online in level one and I think it only had about four frequencies that it frequency hopped around against. And I really don't know much about it, remember much about it, because we never used it. We always used level two. To get to level two, you had to put a code into the computer, but they gave us the code so everyone knew it and everyone used it, and even the foreign nationals. And that was the one that had hundreds or thousands of frequencies, whatever it used to frequency hop. And it had the the raid cluster resolutions and the non-cooperative target recognition. And it had all the, all the bells and whistles on it. And then there was the wartime mode, which was level three, which you had to put a different code in to get to. And they didn't give us that code. Uh, when we asked them about it said, you know, how do you expect people to go to war with the radar that they've never used? They basically said they didn't want the Soviets and their Winnebago's with 20 antennas sticking out of them running up and down the uh, the reno Tonopah Highway, sucking up electrons, knowing what the radar could do. So I never flew the radar in Level 3. Don't know anyone that ever flew it, never heard of anyone. I'm sure the uh, Afotech guys and, and the 422 maybe did at, a, at places where maybe they figured the Soviets couldn't suck up those electrons, but uh, I never did. Did they, did they tell you what it could do in, in Level 3? I think there was one briefing that we got on it, but a lot of the briefing was, it's pretty intuitive. It will do its magic. You will be the recipient. 
Wow. And that was about it. When you say you had to put a code in the computer, do you mean uh, sort of through the data transfer module? Was that part of your mission planning process rather than a manual entry in in the cockpit? Uh, it was a manual entry in the cockpit. Oh. Uh, on the on the multi, one of the multifunction displays, when you called up radar, uh, there was a thing for code, and you punched it in. And it was to get to level two. It was just a four digit code. And you punched it in, and the radar popped up in level two. And it was never changed then, the code? No. I think that, you know, they didn't care that people knew what the radar could do in level two. Hmm. You know, that was all the red flags and everything that we operated in, all the things against the aggressors, the 422, all this. That was all done in level two. Did you um, did you think it was... Uh realistic that these Russians in their Winnebago's would be going round? Do you think it was precautionary or, because uh, I guess when you were in the Red Eagles, you must have been exposed to some of, you know, what the intelligence agencies knew about the Russian intelligence gathering in the, the Nevada and uh, test ranges. Yeah, we saw it was perfectly legal. Um, you know, they had to register and things like that, but they could they could go anywhere they wanted that was not a restricted area. And so they had these Winnebago's with antennas sticking out of them running around the Nellis ranges. And, and I assume probably around uh, most of the other ranges with fighter bases, seeing what type of electrons were out there. How, how was that legal? That, that wouldn't be legal today. It's, it's, an agree, it's an agreement that the United States has with Russia. We could do that on about the same level over there. And we, we sucked up electronic intelligence over there. Oh, I didn't know that. I mean, I knew about the, uh, is it the Bricksmiths? I can't remember what it's called. There was the the sort of East and West Germany thing where, you know, you could go, certain people could go and, and sort of observe what was happening in East Germany and they could send people over to West Germany. But I didn't realize that that was happening um, on the ground in the United States with Russia. Yeah, they had certain recipro reciprocal agreements. There were limitations on them and stuff, but... But, you know, we would let them do stuff here and, and we would do stuff there and we wouldn't arrest their spies and they wouldn't arrest ours. And... Wow. That's incredible. So I suppose then um, it was a valid concern. <laughs> so it, yeah. was a, it was a real thing. What, yeah. what about then uh, at that point, did you have AMRAM in 88? So I think, I, you know, sort of 91 maybe was when AMRAM came in because I think that's when the F-15s got it first and they were the first recipients of it, I think. Um, but we, were, you, were you aware of AMRAM coming down the pipeline to you? Oh, yeah. We had AMRAM software was in the airplane. We could load simulated AMRAMs in the stores management computer, as, as, but it wouldn't, it wouldn't sense the missile, and so it wouldn't give you any of the symbologies and stuff that would come up with it. Um, but uh, I went actually in like 83 or 84 when I was still the chief of wing weapons in the 474th F-16 wing, me and one guy from the 422 and one guy from Edwards went down to Carswell with General Dynamics, and we did the missile launch envelope validation testing studies, taking a look at how the proposal was to, to give the symbology for the missile launch envelopes for the AMRAMs and things, and what the HUDs would look like and, uh, you know, for example, their HUD TD box at one time was just gobbledygook. It was a triangle with a 
a probe leading out of it. There was the target speed and there was an arc around the bottom, which was the launch envelope, even though the launch envelope was on the side. And we finally told them, we said, some things ought to be pure. A target designator box should do one thing, put it around the target. We've got the launch envelope someplace else. And the next morning they had that changed. So, uh, yeah, we knew, we knew AMRAMs were out there and we knew they were coming. It's interesting because it? I think the, it must have really peeved the F-15 guys off, but it was an F-16 D model in 1992 that got the first AMRAM kill um, against a MiG-25 maybe, Iraqi MiG-25. Um, but but what, did you, what did you make of AMRAM then in terms of how it would change the way you employed the F-16? Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm making the assumption that it would change the way you'd employ the F-16 because coming from what you've just described about being aggressive with A-9s, um, sure. It it gave you the head-on, not only the head-on capability, because for an AIM-7, you have to maintain lock onto that target to the radar hits. You are illuminating that target. AMRAM wasn't like that. It was a, it had its own active radar. It had anti-jamming features. It had, um, I think, some abilities to sort on its own to make sure it wasn't targeting a target that another AMRAM in flight had from your airplane. Uh, our symbology and stuff on the C model was set up for AMRAM. So you could have your track while scan things and you could step through the targets. And all you need to do to pump four AMRAMs at four separate targets was push the pickle button for the first target, step to the next target, push on that one, step, push, step, push, and then when that radar went active, which I forget which range it went active at, if you shot it outside of that range, I think you needed to maintain talking to the missiles. But once it got inside of there, went active, you could leave the fight and the missiles were on their own. So, yeah, that would have changed things significantly. It's interesting watching you do that because you're doing the HOTAS, which is shoot and step because the step button's on the outside of the stick, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, step, button, step button's right there. Missile step. Uh Air refueling disconnect? It was it air, re air refueling disconnect? And those will stay and, on, uh, and something else. There'll, so, there'll be a bunch of um, F-16 aficionados watching this. They'll, they'll tell us in the comments. Um, yeah. But nose, wheel, nose wheel steering. I think if you're on the ground with the gear down, that was your nose wheel steering button. Air refueling door open. It was air refuel disconnect and uh, missile step in flight. Yeah. You, you talked about the TEMA switch earlier, and there's uh, that was in the F-16A, and then they, they introduced for the CMOD the DEMA switch, didn't they? The, the display management switch. How, how did you cope with that? It's been described as playing the piccolo, hasn't it? But how did you cope with the that? Varsity, the, the A model was the piccolo. The C model was the varsity piccolo. Um, you just learned it. You practiced it. So, yeah, you had the target management on the A, the C, you not only had target management, you had display management, and you also had countermeasures management for chaff flares, ECM pod and stuff. And so that, it, it came down to practice. And that was for us, some of the importance of getting to the range and from the range. We didn't just cruise to the range or from the range. We were doing exercises going out there. We're putting the radars in different modes. We're doing slowable ACM. We're doing vertical scan. We're using display management, rotating the displays around. Um, you know, that's where you got a lot of the practice on using these things because, you know, that was just your right hand. And in your left hand, 
you had your uh, radios, UHF, VHF, you had the missile cage, uncaged, you had gun ranging, you had the cursor slew. Uh, there was there was just a whole bunch of things, but it was a lot easier than if you'd have to punched up here or gone down on a side panel. Hmm. So, Speaking of things that you had, one of the other things that I understand was uh, a new thing for um, single seat fighters, at least, was the raw didn't it have uh, sort of digitized or synthetic sounds for each threat system? So an SA two would sound would have a certain sound, an SA three would have a certain sound, an SA five would have a different sound, and and you could learn all those using a, a computer program on the ground. Is that true? Uh, not the way I remember it. In the early model raw radar homing warning in the F four, you were hearing raw audio coming in. So each system did have a different sound to it. But in the, in the F-16 radar warning receiver, you typically got, unless you did something funny, you typically got what we called new guy audio, which meant when a new guy came on the scope, you got seven beeps of new guy audio, just beep, 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 beep. And that was for you to look to the raw gear to see what else had come up on the scope. But there was a thing with the system test where if you held the system test button in, you could get wide open audio. You could get that, that pure audio coming in. And some guys, not me, some guys would go to the officer's club at lunchtime and get a toothpick. And for their afternoon sorties, they'd go out and they'd take that raw gear, they'd push the button in, they'd jam the toothpick in beside of it and snap it off. And that would hold that raw gear button in so they'd get wide open audio instead of just the seven beeps of new guy audio. And and would you so so that presumably then would indicate some old school guys. Uh, so you you wouldn't I mean a, a new a new guy to the airplane wouldn't do that. So but but how would you know what you were listening to then? From whatever came up on the scope. Okay. Because it would come up on the scope like as a six or a three or something like that, that showed you what threats were there. And as I recall, the, the one ring was the threat ring. So it showed when that system was in range, not necessarily how far you were away from it, but when that system was in range. So, you know, it wasn't an integrated system in that it was totally separate from the radar and the stores management. My understanding now, certainly of the fifth generation fighters, is that's all integrated to form one picture for them. But but this was separate, and it was, um, you know, it, it 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 just called your attention to the fact that you've got things looking at you that are threats to you, and these are what they are right now. And if one of them would launch, I think then you got launch audioed, and that one would flash. So, so it wasn't as though by pressing that little button in, you would just hear a continuous stream of noise. You'd still hear discrete sounds, but they would be um, tied to what the radar warning receiver was processing. Yeah, tied to the, tied to the threats that were actually looking at you. If you had a search radar just go through you, you'd get beep 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 yeah, okay. beep beep. If if a radar like maybe a target a uh, uh, search radar locked on you might get a beep and a uh, high uh, higher PRF preparing for missile launch it might go be 
you know. So you're right. That was a lot of the older school F4 guys that kind of liked that wide open audio. But that was another audio thing that was competing for you. And sometimes the new guy audio wouldn't break through the radio chatter and things like that. Hmm. So that's why I think a lot of guys, or at least some guys did that. Did you ever scare yourself in the airplane? Which airplane? F-16. Or, or, I mean, any of them, really. I mean, I'm, I suppose I'm looking for a good story. Uh, you know, the F-4, I had a student almost run, run us out of gas once, but that worked out fine. The F-16, it had a thing called deep stall. You ever heard of that? Yeah, so the falling leaf. It, is it, that what it, it would stall. It would fall like a leaf, and the stabilator would be trying to get it out but wouldn't have enough. And there was a thing on your left side called manual pitch override, and you would rock it out like you were rocking a car out of the snow to get it out. I had that happen a couple times, but that was no real biggie. Uh, MiG-21 never scared me. MiG-23 scared me a couple times. Do you remember them? Yeah. Can you tell us? Well, there was the infamous day when I spun it twice, um, fighting two F-16s, kicked them across the, the tail and was going to do this reversal on them. And, the, you know, they were two miles away or something. Have you ever heard a thing called adverse y'all? Mm -hmm. Adverse y'all on the F-4. If you wanted to roll left, you'd put the, the left aileron or the right aileron would go down, which would cause more lift on that wing and it would roll left. But when you got it at a high enough angle of attack, that flap going down on that side caused more drag than it did lift. And so the airplane then would yaw to the right, which put this wing then getting more lift than this one, and the airplane would actually roll left. So that was called adverse yaw. So I kicked, you know, I'm bringing this MiG-23 back in a left turn, and it starts this gentle roll to the right. And it immediately brought back adverse y'all to me, and all you needed to do was unload the angle of attack, and it was good. Well, this thing did two converging barrel rolls, stopped in space, about 40 degrees nose high, yawed, threw me against the side of the canopy, and took off spinning. And one of these F-16 guys asked me, he says, are you okay? <laughs> I said, no. But that gave me a lot of confidence, because if when you're task saturated, the first thing that goes is your hearing. It's called audio exclusion. You know, you're busy and you don't hear things. But I heard this guy and I said, you know, you got this. You know what to do for it. Let's give it a shot. So I did the spin uh, recovery procedure. And after about a spin or two, it popped right out about 70 degrees nose low. And I don't know what I am now. I'm maybe 15,000 feet or something. And I'm doing this recovery, which is going to be down about 12 or 13,000 AGL. And it's not a very aggressive recovery, but it's just a normal recovery. And when it's about 45 nose low, the nose pops to the horizon. Didn't fly there, popped there. So you knew the AOA was about 45 degrees and the flogger wasn't going to take that. And sure enough, it yawed, threw me against the side of camp again, flipped upside down, started spinning upside down. But I had just had some very recent spin recovery experience in the MiG-23. <laughs> so I said, let's give it another go. So I give it another go with the spin recovery procedure. And sure enough, it pops out 70 degrees nose low inverted. I roll it right side up. You know, I'm now down below 10,000 feet, but I've got, I can see the desert floor. And I just basically say, Ted, do not let this airplane depart on you again. 
and I do a very gentle recovery to where it maybe cleared the desert floor by 2,000 feet. The airfield's back there. I just do a gentle turn and said, sorry, guys, I got to take this one home and uh, went back and landed. And the uh, funny thing was I, I wasn't scared during that whole thing. I go back, I land, I'm rolling out. I've got it down probably at 60 knots, and then I get scared. I can just feel my heart and my chest pounding. And I, I went to the D-arm area, and I shut it down and uh, got out and kicked the nose gear and hurt my foot and started hoofing it back to the squadron until Paco came out in the Jeep and picked me up and gave me a ride. But, uh, yeah, that was that was probably my worst experience in it. I had one other one where um, where on an FCF, uh, one of the ramps stopped doing about 1.7, and it started doing these uncommanded rolls. And to solve that, if it kept doing it, the only thing you could do was when the nose came up, up when you were upright, you had to pull the nose up, and when you were inverted, you had to push. And you had to just get in the nose up and up to get the speed down enough to where you could get the wings forward, to where the spoilers would work, to where you could counteract that roll caused by the yaw differential on that one engine intake. And uh, But fortunately, after about a roll and a half, the ramp broke loose and went to its position, and, uh, and that one worked out okay. Um, that sounds terrifying. That well, sounds more terrifying than the seconds, first one. For a couple seconds it was. But, you know, once again, you know what you're going to have to do. And if you can't do that, the only alternative is, is to shut the engine down to get it to go slow enough. Because mm -hmm. as we've talked about before, if you're going faster than 1.5 Mach in an air model and you bring the throttle to idle, the burner will blow out. But the core engine still runs at 100% RPM until you get down below those speeds. And 100% RPM in a flogger with wings at 72 degrees, it doesn't slow down very fast at all. Mm. So, you know, I had some plans that I could do, but when you got a single-engine airplane, you don't want to shut that thing down. That's the last thing you want to do. There was the one other time when the flogger saved my life, and I'm grateful for that. And that was a day when I had, I was at 15,000 feet, and it was a ground model flogger, a flog, uh, MiG-23BN flogger F, and I hit a bird right in the center of the windscreen doing about 630 knots cow. And that center windscreen on that ground model flogger had 17 layers of plastics and laminates. And that bird broke 14 of the 17 layers, shattered the windscreen, couldn't see out the front of that, came back, I think picked up a T-38. He did the approach to the runway with me on the wing and in the flare, he dropped me off and, and landed. So, but uh, I'm, I'm grateful that, uh, that I was in that ground model flogger that day. Would you, um, are you comfortable, would you be comfortable talking about the other mishap that involved um, going too fast and not being able to slow the airplane down in time? You don't have to if you don't want to, but. Uh, A little, if you want to talk about it. Yeah, I mean, we, we don't have to mention any names, but, you know, or, or any, any places or anything like that. But there was another. Uh, MiG-23 loss that involved going too fast. I, I guess it'd be interesting to hear an explanation around the aerodynamic effects that were, were that occur inside the inlets. Um, you know, why it is that they the Russians introduced that control lock to make sure that you couldn't, you know, retard the, well, you can retard the throttle, but the engine won't, as you just described, won't spool down until it hits certain 
um, me- metrics. Um, can you describe what that what what took place in that flight? Your understanding of it and and, and what the sort of aerodynamic phenomena were that what were occurring. Yeah. First of all, let me talk about that speed coast down interlock because that is not unique to Russian engines. We got the same thing. Uh, jet engines do not like to go take air from high supersonic and and take it to an idling engine at low subsonic. It, a lot of times it'll just tear the engine apart. So the same thing for ours, although I think ours, uh, like an F-16 engine, which was the Pratt & Whitney F-100-200, I think it was 1.1 Mach, if I'm not mistaken. If you were above 1.1, you brought the throttle to idle, burner blew out, but the engine stayed at mill power until you got below 1.1, and then it rolled to idle. But it wasn't as noticeable, as dramatic as it was in that in the flogger, being at 1.5 Mach. Uh, so this guy is on TR2. He doesn't have a lot of time in the airplane. He hasn't done a lot of academic preparation for it. The briefing for the flight was on the canopy rail. Um, so he doesn't have a lot of background, a lot of system knowledge of things that can go wrong and what you do for him. So he's on TR2 which used to be a mock run, taking the airplane out to about Mach 2.2 or 2.3. Limits 2.35, as I recall. Um, and so he's taken it out on this, and he's got a T-38 in the chase plane. But at least in my opinion, the T-38 didn't chase him correctly. You don't chase a MiG-23 with a T-38 starting from line abreast and go, burner's ready now, because that MiG-23 is just going to walk away from it. The way I used to do it is I'd drop back three miles with the T-38. I'd, I'd, I'd just do a big angle of attack recovery, drop back three miles, do an in-place 180, which now put me three miles in front of him, call for the burners. You know, after a minute or so, he's going to be passing me, but I can still see him. And, and when he gets out to Mach 2, you know, he's three or four miles in front of me, and I can see him, but he's not eight or ten miles in front of me. So the T-38 guy loses sight of him. Then, apparently what happens, from what I understand, the flogger, you have to understand, it kind of looked like an F-4. The intake ramps were the same as an F-4 and stuff, but it was a single-engine airplane. And what it was possible to do was get a compressor stall on half of the face of this compressor with the air backed up in one, uh, one intake but not in the other which caused so much drag on the face of the compressor that the plane yawed and rolled. MiG-23 flight controls. The wing, when it's forward, has full spoilers on the wings. Doesn't have ailerons. Rolls with spoilers. As the wing sweeps back, the spoilers have to fade out or they dig into the side of the fuselage, such that when the wings are all the way back at 72 degrees, there's no spoiler at all. It's rolling totally with differential stabilator which under normal conditions felt absolutely normal. Rolled just like you would expect it to roll. But when you've got this stall in one one side of the intake, one intake and one side of the compressor, which causes this roll, which causes this yaw, uh, this roll, the stabilator doesn't have enough control authority to counteract that. So you've got to get something to counteract it. And the only thing they'll do it is spoilers. So you've got to get the airplane slowed down enough 
that you can get the wings forward to get the spoilers to work into where they can stop this roll. And there's only two ways you can really do it. One is because if you're going straight and level with a MiG-23 doing Mach 2 and you bring the throttle to idle, which means the burner blows out, but the engine stays at mill power, you're sitting there watching this. You're doing Mach 2. One point nine nine. There's not enough airspace to get that thing to slow down to one point five for that uh, speed coast down interlock to release the engine to let it roll to idle. So you either have to start jacking the nose up, and when it's when it's rolling, when it's inverted push, and when it's right side up pull to get it to slow down to do that, or you got to shut the engine down to get that engine not producing thrust where you can get the wings forward where you can stop the roll. And that would be challenging for a guy that's got 50 or 100 sorties in it. For a guy that's only had one sortie previous to this, it was just more than he probably probably didn't know what was happening or didn't know how to correct it if it, if it was happening. So he ends up jumping out and uh, he dies in the injection. Did you really, as part of your checkout then, your personal checkout, um, in the aeroplane, did you really understand those things yourself as well before you uh, let loose in, in the aeroplane? Oh, yeah. We knew it even before it happened to him. It was a known, a known factor. But certainly after it happened to this guy, then every guy that checked out the big 23 after that, uh, you know, that was part of the emergency procedure stuff that you'd go through and what you needed to do for it. You said uh, at the beginning that um, you were called Gabby in in the 4477th. Where does that come from then? Check out in the MiG-21. You flew... um, Well, let me me go to total checkout. Because this checkout was simple, but it was beautiful in its simplicity. You had about two weeks of academics. And then on Wednesday, the second week, you went out with your IP... And you just did an engine start. You shut it. You started the engine, shut it down. He jumped in and went and flew a BFM mission. On Thursday of that second week, you did a slow taxi. So you got in and you started the engine. You'd done that once before. That's not new. But now you're going to taxi the airplane. And especially the early model MiG-21Cs, they didn't have nose gear steering. So getting it out of the chocks and into the chocks was some of the most challenging things you did. You had to get enough power to get the speed going enough, to get the turn going without stopping, because then you couldn't power up because you'd blow over the crew chiefs and the age equipment and stuff. <laughs> so anyway, you taxi out, and your call sign is ZigZag01. <laughs> and so you taxi out, and your IP's chasing you in a Jeep, and you go down to the arming area, and they arm you up, and you go out on the runway, and you taxi down the length of the runway at taxi speed, which for us was about 70 knots. And the reason for that is big 23 brakes run off of air it didn't have nose gear steering so you steered it with differential brakes now the f4 had a pneumatic system too but it had a pump on it where if you use some of the air out of it the pump replenished it up to the normal pressure which i think was 2000 psi big 21 didn't have that you got a certain amount of air to use for that flight and when that air was up you were done no more brakes so as a result of that MiG-21 guys watched their air pneumatic pressure almost as closely as you watched your gas. 
But if you get it up over 50 knots, then you could steer it with the rudder and you didn't use the brakes and you weren't using any air. So once we'd get it up on a straightaway, we'd push it up to 50 to 70 knots and we'd taxi at that speed till we needed to get it slowed down then a slow, steady application, get it in the army area, taxi it down the runway, de-arm it, take it back to the chalks. Friday of the second week, you did your fast taxi. So you started the engines. You've done that twice before. You um, taxied the airplane out to the runway. You've got done that once before. You take it out on the runway, but now you take it, you run the engine up, you release the brakes, you light the burner, you take it up to 135 knots, and then you abort it. Throttle idle, put the drag chute out, get it stabilized, take it to the end of the runway. All the generals used to ask us, why are you teaching a guy to do an emergency? Why are you teaching a board? Well, we're not really doing that, sir. What we're trying to do is combine two of the more critical phases of flight into something this guy can do on the ground so that when he goes up on TR1 and he has to do it for real, he's done it one time before. And those critical phases of flight are the takeoff roll, getting it up to 135, which is about nose wheel liftoff speed, and then the after landing portion after the guy lands, Keep throttled out of getting out the drag chute, getting it stabilized in there, and then getting it down to DR. So then on Tuesday of the next week, you had your TR1 flight. So you started the engine. You've done that three times before. You're getting pretty good at that. You taxi to the runway. You've done that twice before. That's not new. You take it out on the runway. The T38 typically took off first. He would pull closed traffic, and then he would clear you for takeoff. Tower basically relinquished control to the T-38. That was done all the time. And when he was in position, he'd hear you for takeoff. You ran it up, released brakes, lit the burner, took it to 135 knots. You've done all that before. Now you just rotate the airplane to 10 to 12 degrees nose high. Gear comes up. Or you get airborne. The gear comes up. You get going a little faster. The flaps come up. A little bit more after that, you bring the gear handle back to neutral, which was the MiGs uh, – was one of their things to take hydraulic pressure off the system. The T-38's coming around behind you. He picks you up just as you break ground, and you go out and you fly your TR-1, and you do your hard turns and your loops and your acro and maybe a stall or something like that in the MiG-21. You didn't do a stall in the MiG-23, and you come back and do a couple touch and goes with your IP chasing, and you do a full stop. So that was TR-1. You did, I think, four of those, and then you did a check ride, and you're qualifying the airplane, but then we did a thing called performance profiles. And the first performance profile that you did, you did with your IP, and then the next four you did against the fleet before you went into your BFM checkout. So I'm on performance profile two with this guy. Performance profile one, you know, I, I led that, briefed it, and debriefed it, and it went okay. There wasn't any big comments from the IP. So I go out on performance profile two against the fleet. And when the guys in the squadron weren't doing anything, they would turn the squadron radio to your frequency and listen to see what was going on just so they could give you shit for nothing else. So I come back from that and we used to have a thing called valet parking. Our, our fuel pit was just across from the squadron. We'd just pull the MIG into the fuel pit. The maintenance guys would fuel and push it back to the chocks and and you just go in the squadron. So I go in the squadron and Monroe Watley's in there and he goes, no, no. He says, uh, you didn't talk to him enough. He says, you need to tell him about this. You need to tell him about that. You need to tell him about this other thing. And I said, okay. So I go up on performance profile three and I tell him about those things that Monroe was saying. So I come back in. I said, okay, Monroe, how was that? 
And he says, now you're just being Gabby. So that's how that came about. So final question for you then. So um, when we met uh, the first time, I think uh, we talked on the phone, but the first time I actually met you was 2016 for the the Red Eagle reunion that that, uh, we we both went to. But um, you said to me, that even though it had been about, I think at that point, 40 years since you'd last flown the F4, you still remembered the um, shutdown checklist off by heart. Do you still remember it now? Mode four, hold, lower guard up, stab bog, ditch, gauge turn, ring it up, normal engine, ice, come radar, temperature off, stab trim, set, rip, scissors, standby, rate move, P to heat, IFF off, temperature default, full hot, full forward, tack and off, sight shutter, standby, close, refueling, selection, all tanks, formation lights off. <laughs> I can't get rid of it. That's crazy. It's using, it's using space I could use for other things. I can't get rid of it. F-16 was much better. It was sleepy. Speed brakes, landing light, ejection seat, EPU, probe heat, IFF. Easy. But I just, I, I don't know why I remember that. I flew many more hours and things in the uh, Boeing 757 than I did in the F-4. And I can't remember the 757 checklists at all. But that F-4 checklist just stays with me. Well, Ted, Gabby, thank you so much for uh, joining us once again on 10% Truth. It's been great to speak to you again and appreciate you sharing your experiences and your stories with us. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me on, Steve. Cheers, Ted. Thanks for tuning in to 10% Truth. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Feel free to subscribe, and if you're on YouTube, hit the bell button to make sure you get notified of the next episode. Thanks, and take care.